Well, the title of today's message is Why So Much Pain? And I think it's an appropriate title for a Sunday like ours, which is World Refugee Sunday. I've invited a good friend, Doug Hebert, to share a story with us, a refugee story from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Malawi. Doug and his wife, Deanna, and their three daughters serve as missionaries uh, in the Great Lakes region of Africa. They're based in Burundi and serve in a number of different countries. So welcome here, Doug. Thanks, Ray. It's a real privilege to be with you this weekend and to share just a little story of my friend Safari. So Safari comes from the eastern part of the Democratic Republic. It's a a region of the world that's known for its beauty and its incredible mineral wealth, but also its many problems of war and of poverty. As a young man, Safari began attending a Mennonite Brethren church there in eastern Congo, and it was there that he was captivated by Jesus' teaching on the need for us to love our neighbor and even our enemy, and the imperative for us to forgive. After some years at this church, the fighting around the town intensified, and Safari began to look for an opportunity to, an opportunity to flee. And for him, the straw, the, the straw was broken when um, his parents were murdered in a village nearby simply because of their ethnicity. Safari ended up in a refugee camp in a neighboring country, Malawi. As one can imagine, the refugee camp is a place with numerous different um, nationalities represented and full of conflict. Not only that, it was a desperate and hopeless place with high rates of suicide and many instances of rape. This camp is still um, there today. There's about 45,000 people living in one spot. And people are always wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. Safari knew as he arrived there that the gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus, was so desperately needed. So he began a church, a Mennonite Brethren church, right there in the refugee camp. And began teaching the people to love and to forgive. Well, one day his teaching about love and forgiveness was deeply tested. A man showed up in the camp and came to his doorstep. He had just recently arrived from Congo and was looking for a place to stay. It wasn't long before Safari realized who this man was. This was the very man who had killed his parents. How would he he respond to this man? Well, I can tell you by the grace of God, Safari welcomed into, into his home. He forgave him. He led him to Jesus. And now this man is one of the leaders in his church. Safari is not only teaching a message of res- reconciliation, but he's living it out. And the church is moving forward. There are new churches being planted regularly. Members are being discipled. People are slowly finding financial stability. And local churches are sending out missionaries to plant other churches in Malawi. Twice now, Safari has been offered um, passage to Western countries to leave the refugee camp and start a new life in the U.S., in Australia. Both times, Safari said, I will not go. The U.N., the United Nations, thinks this guy is crazy now. I have a calling. I'm called to these people, is what Safari says. We've been partnering now with Safari in this newly emerging church for four years. We have so much to learn from this brother, and from this family of churches about faith, about forgiveness, about suffering for the gospel, 
about redeeming the bad and the hard and the incomprehensible for the glory of God. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Doug. We pray for you as you go back to Burundi in a, in a few weeks. Um, the Great Lakes region of Africa, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, uh, what a beautiful region, naturally beautiful. But in recent times, its story is one of the most painful. Greater Vancouver, a beautiful, beautiful place to live, and yet, why so much pain? In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we saw that God designed for the man and the woman the most idyllic environment imaginable. Man and woman created in God's image, created with purpose, to, the purpose to love God, to love one another, to rule over creation, to be fruitful and multiply. Man and woman, they were one. God present with them. Their lives were beautiful, needing nothing. The serpent came with seemingly innocent words, questioning God's motives, minimizing the possibility of, of punishment. He emphasized the one restriction that God had made and didn't even reference God's abundant provision. Adam and Eve were drawn by his words. They thought that it would be better for them if they would go their own way. They thought that they would be more wise, more insightful, more godlike. Adam and Eve, they, they eat from the tree, and for the first time they experience shame. For the first time there's separation between Adam and his dearest companion, Eve. For the first time, they experience separation from God. They experience shame, and God comes to them, and he says, where are you? And you hear pain just in the question. In Adam and Eve's decision to act independently of God, we have the beginning of every sin, all pain, all suffering. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The entire human race comes under the power of sin and death. Anguish and anxiety now characterize the human condition. In poetic language, God pronounces judgment on the man, woman, the serpent, the ground. Why poetic language? Why the rhythmical pattern? Is it because of the pain in, in what God is saying that the pain that God is experiencing actually goes beyond words? He speaks first to the serpent. Chapter 3, verse 14. Page 3 of your Bibles, if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you. Page 3, Romans 3, sorry, Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In verse 1, the serpent is described as the most crafty. Now the serpent is the most cursed. Because it tempted the woman, it will be viewed with contempt. 
It will go on its belly and eat dust, signs of humiliation, of defeat. There will be ongoing hostility between the serpent race and humanity. That's why men try to kill snakes and snakes strike people. I don't know if you've ever lived in a place where there are many snakes. Not too many snakes in Canada. I lived in Texas for a year, and there, when working in a camp, we were always on our guard. There were lots of poisonous snakes, uh, coral snakes and copperheads and rattlesnakes and pit vipers and water moccasins. I taught canoeing, and even as I was teaching kids to canoe up the Guadalupe River, there would be snakes swimming beside us. And so if you live in an environment where there are snakes, you are on your guard, always watching. A few months ago, I was at the San Diego Zoo. It's a much safer environment. The snakes are in rooms behind glass. But it's interesting that usually the snakes are camouflaged by the foliage and the rocks, and so you look through the glass looking for the snake, and when you see it, (laughs) a little shiver goes down your spine. So in the natural realm, there's hostility between humanity and the serpent race. And of course, on another level, the snake represents the presence of evil in human life. The New Testament identifies, clearly identifies the serpent as Satan. Generation after generation, we as human beings wrestle with the presence of evil in our lives. And of course, the question we ask is, why does God allow evil to exist? Why does he allow Satan to exist? God allows Satan to exist to test the faithfulness of his people so that we might learn obedience to Jesus, so that we might learn to wage war with our spiritual enemy, trusting in God for victory. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. The struggle with evil produces character in us. We live less for ourselves, which led to our fall. We learn to live out our purpose, to love God, to love others. Men and women can face the anxiety generated by the presence of evil by entrusting themselves to Almighty God. We learn to face the anxiety generated by the presence of evil in our lives by entrusting ourselves to Almighty God. The complete and final defeat of Satan is on the horizon. We are to live with hope and expectation. God has pronounced his sure judgment. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome that is facing fierce opposition, and he writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're to live full of hope and restoration. And of course, there's a gospel seed there at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will bruise the heel of our Savior, but Jesus will strike the mortal blow. 
Many theologians believe that that is the first pronouncement of the gospel in the scriptures, and that will be the subject of next week's message. For now, let's continue. God continues in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. God pronounces that the role of the woman as helper, as mother of children, will be disrupted. The blessing of having children, the blessing of raising children remains, but this woman will suffer pain. John Walton, in his commentary on Genesis, he offers this paraphrase of verse 16. I will greatly increase the anguish you will experience in the birthing process, from the anxiety surrounding conception to the strenuous work of giving birth. He offers that paraphrase because in the original, the language, it talks about the emotional, the mental, the physical suffering that is involved in the entire birthing process. Anxiety around the ability to conceive. Anxiety around the health of the child in the womb. Anxiety around the health of the child and the mother during the birthing process. The whole process is laced with anxiety. We pray about these things every week at Willingdon. We know that this is a part of the human condition. The punishment here, it strikes at the heart of woman's distinctiveness. For she is the mother of all living. And the pain in bearing children and raising children, it is meant to, to lead women to cast themselves on God. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. As we read through the Scriptures, we see that God loves and cares for women. Example after example, Sarah and Hannah and Ruth, the the good Samaritan, uh, sorry, the Samaritan woman, Mary. Example after example. God blessing women, God caring for women. I remember preparing myself for the birth of our first child. I took prenatal classes. How many men here have taken prenatal classes? Come on, you can confess. It's great. I recommend it to you. you. You learn how to breathe. So there I am with my wife. We're preparing ourselves, trying to reduce the anxiety around delivery. But in the end, despite all of my preparation, I didn't do very much. Surprise, my wife gave birth to the baby. The role of men in the birthing process is minuscule. It's the way God has made us. That gift has been given to women. What's meant by that phrase, by your desire, but but your desire shall be for your husband? That phrase is notoriously difficult to translate, and it's evidenced by the many different ways that it is translated in English. For example, one translation Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, your desire shall be against your husband. Your desire, you will desire to control your husband. So, what is this phrase expressing the desire of women to dominate their husbands, to lead their husbands? Will there be this ongoing struggle in the marriage relationship for leadership? 
Another translation is this. Your desire will be for your husband. So is the phrase expressing some inordinate desire that the the wife carries to, to have a husband and have a child? Is there some kind of unhealthy dependency now on men, on the part of women? Will they even be willing to allow themselves to be exploited in order to have children? Is that what it's talking about? What we can say with certainty is that the oneness that God intended for a husband and a wife, that oneness has been affected by sin. The harmony that God ordained has been damaged by sin. The complementary relationship between a husband and a wife, that has been affected by sin. The beauty of man and woman helping each other has been distorted. The second half of the verse is very clear. He shall rule over you. And again, this punishment, it is not the ideal to strive strive after. These words, unfortunately, describe much of human history where men have domineered over women, sought to control rather than guarding, rather than caring for. Where do we find God's will for marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the husband exercises his leadership, exercises his headship by laying down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. And the woman submits to her husband as she would to Christ. Both husband and wife need to entrust themselves to God in order to live out their God-given roles. The will of God for man and woman has not changed. Oneness. He wants that for them and is present by his Holy Spirit to help one man and woman walk as one. Women can face the anxiety of childbearing and difficult relationships with men by trusting God who gives life and cares deeply for them. By trusting God who gives life and cares deeply for them. And that sounds very simplistic, but it is so true. In the anxiety of the childbearing uh, process, In the difficulties of relationship, when we entrust ourselves completely to God and submit to his sovereignty in the direction of his Holy Spirit, we are freed, we are empowered to make the decisions we need to make. God goes on, verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's interesting that God does not curse the man and woman directly. He curses the ground. 
Because Adam ate from the tree that was forbidden to him, he will now struggle to find food. The abundant productivity of Eden, that is gone. The ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. When I was a young boy, my parents had a raspberry patch. And I have a clear memory of playing in my room and my mother came to me and said, Raymond, why don't you do something constructive? Go out to the raspberry patch and pull some weeds. So I went out there between the raspberry rows and I'm pulling out pigweeds and thistles and sometimes that hurts a bit. But I remember having this thought as I was pulling out weeds, why is this more constructive here doing this, more constructive than what I was doing in my room? But anyways, it's boring, dreadfully boring, tedious. We live somewhat removed from the reality of the earth when we live in an urban center, but if you've ever lived in a place where you're trying to bring food from the ground, it involves work from beginning to end. So the curse is not the fact that man will now have to work. God works. Man and woman, they work prior to the fall. But the punishment is that there's going to be hardship, there's going to be toil, there will be frustration in eking out a living. The punishment here, it strikes at the nerve, I believe, of what it means to be a man. His role as a worker, as a provider. How many men think of themselves in terms of their work, in terms of their ability to provide, and they will now struggle to survive and to provide? And not only that, they now face the reality of death. They are going to return to dust. The earth will resist them, as they live on earth, and eventually it will swallow them. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." And so as we journey through life, even though there may be difficulty in the suffering, we are to understand that God will provide for us. He is faithful, and he will provide the way to victory over death. And we will be able to sing, oh, death, where is your victory? So men can face the anxiety of their struggle to survive, their struggle for survival and the inevitability of death by learning to trust God as provider and victor over death, learning to trust God as provider and victor over death. In verse 20, the man names his wife. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life giver. She will become the common female ancestor of all of humanity. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God, 
Notice that the personal name of God is used. And so even though Adam and Eve have sinned, God comes in grace and cares for them. He prepares them for the more difficult environment that they are now going to face outside of the Garden of Eden. He extends grace to them and he covers their shame. And in covering their shame, an animal is sacrificed. And so is there here a foreshadowing of the animal sacrifices that will be uh, done in order to cover their sins. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's interesting, in verse 22, God, he he begins a sentence and does not complete it. He breaks off the sentence because something is very urgent. The thought of man forever living apart from him In a sinful condition, that's unbearable. God must do something. And so he promptly expels man and woman from the garden and a cherubim and a flaming sword are placed at the entrance of the garden to the east of the garden to guard the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve, they were created to work the garden, to guard the garden. But they chose to sin. They chose to go their own way. And so now cherubim are placed to guard the presence of the Lord. And we see this imagery, this message, even in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. In the tabernacle, the tabernacle there were rooms as you approached the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant rested. So as you moved through the tabernacle and the temple, you would enter the the holy place, and then there would be a curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, and woven into the curtain were cherubim guarding the presence of the Lord. And there inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and above the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and over the mercy seat, cherubim. Giant cherubim, their wings spreading to both walls of the Holy of Holies. So cherubim guarding the presence of the Lord, guarding the throne of God. You see, the overwhelming loss of Adam and Eve's sin was not the loss of the comforts and the benefits of the Garden of Eden. The overwhelming loss was the loss of access to God. So how do we get back? We express this distance from God in, in religion. Rituals, incantations, temples that we build, good deeds that we do, all of this in an effort to somehow gain God's favor, attempts to manipulate the spiritual realm in our favor, futile attempts. In our more secularized society here in Canada, we try to suppress our need for God. But even though we try to deny our need for God, you see increasing levels of anxiety because we're unable to deal without the root causes of our anxiety. And so we have our media escapes, we have our self-help theories, we have our consumerism, all of that to somehow suppress what we feel so deeply within us. Bruce Walke writes, commentator on Genesis, the attempts to resolve anxiety in our culture are largely psychological, economic, and cosmetic. 
They are bound to fail because they do not approach anxiety's causes. Our public life is largely premised on an exploitation of our common anxiety. The advertising of our consumerism and the drives of the acquisitive society, like the serpent, seduce us into believing that there are securities apart from the reality of God. We're seduced and begin to believe that if we do go our own way, we will find security somewhere other than in God. So the question remains, how do we deal with our anxiety? As we struggle to overcome evil, as we experience anxiety in our desire for children, as we seek to walk as one, husband and wife, and there we experience anguish, as we try to eke out a living from the ground, as we face the reality of physical death, all of this generating anguish and anxiety, how do we deal with its root cause? And if we are refugees like Safari, then our experience of this pain, it's multiplied over and over and over again. How do we get back to Eden? What's the way back into the Father's presence? Well, someone will have to take that flaming sword in order to open the way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus opened the way into the Father's presence. He's our mediator. He's our high priest. We can enter by placing our trust in him. So men and women can face the anxiety of separation from God by trusting in the one who has opened the way, and there is only one, Jesus entrusting ourselves to the one who has opened the way, Jesus. You know, sin is essentially a decision to not trust in God. It's an assertion of our autonomy. It's a statement of unbelief in God's goodness. And as we walk independently of God, we experience the anguish and the anxiety of the presence of evil. We experience anguish and anxiety in the giving of birth to children. We experience anguish and anxiety in husband and wife relationships. We struggle to provide. We experience the pain of our wanderings east of Eden. We experience the pain of separation from God. We exhaust our resources. And then by God's grace, if we humble ourselves, We entrust ourselves to Jesus, and there's grace in the suffering. If we did not suffer, we would walk independently of God. We would go our own way. But in the suffering, our resources are exhausted, and we realize that we cannot move forward 
without Jesus. And as we cast our cares on him, we trust him for eternal salvation. We become children of God. And as we walk with Jesus and we face the anxieties of our day, we learn to trust him for daily protection, for blessing, for daily provision. We learn to trust him in all areas of life. We become disciples of Jesus. And a disciple like Safari, who has faced tremendous suffering, the loss of his parents, there in a refugee camp, away from his homeland, suffering, facing a suffering that few of us have encountered, even in that situation, because Jesus is present in his life, because he knows Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit is at work in him, he can see beyond himself and see the plight of those around him. And when the murderer of his parents comes to his home, by grace, he can receive him in and share the message of Jesus and see that man's life transformed by the grace of God. So what is causing you anxiety today? Is it the presence of evil in your life? Is it your desire to have a child? Maybe God has given you children and now you experience anxiety in the raising of those children. Maybe you experience anxiety in your marriage. Maybe you're just longing for someone, a man, a woman, a friend. You experience anxiety where you work, in your desire to provide. Do you experience anxiety because you are facing physical death? Or you were walking with a person that you really love and has been diagnosed with a terminal illness? What is generating anxiety in your life today? Is it your separation from God? And as you think about what is generating anxiety in your life today, what would it look like for you to entrust yourself completely to Jesus today? What would that look like? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are sovereign over all of life from beginning to end. You are the Lord of all of history and you are the Lord over our individual stories. And so, Father, forgive us when we go our own way, when we think that our way may be better than yours, when we doubt your goodness, when we wonder about your presence in our lives. Father, forgive us. May we know that you are always present, that you hear our prayers, that nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you, Lord, that you, your word calls us to come to you when we are thirsty, when we are in need. Thank you that you don't despise us when we are in need. Lord, your word encourages us to incline our ears to you and to come to you and hear your voice over our lives. Lord, your word teaches us that we are to seek you and if we seek you, we will find you. If we ask, you will answer. 
And so, Lord, in this moment, we come to you with our anxieties and we present them before you. Lord, I pray that as we entrust ourselves to you, Lord, that we would hear your voice over our lives. I thank you that your word says that you keep in perfect peace the person whose mind is stayed on you, fixed on you, because he or she trusts in you. Lord, you're the everlasting rock, and so may we entrust ourselves fully to you. You're our rock, you're our fortress, you're our cornerstone, the foundation of our lives. And so, Lord, there's peace in that place of being entrusted to you, of knowing that your love is steadfast, come what may, that you are always faithful and present to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Father. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would experience your blessing, you guarding their hearts, that they would know that your face shines on them, that your favor is on them, and that you're present to give them peace. You're present for them to experience your grace. Thank you that even in the midst of suffering, there is grace and the opportunity to experience the power of your resurrection. Lord, may we live this day, this week, with faith in you, faith in you alone, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.